are we doing today? I think we're still recovering from too much on Thanksgiving, maybe? Let's see, yes. May have turkey for breakfast? Wow. All right, let's get going, James. Um, so we're going to wrap up our series in the book of James. Um, and then next week we're going to begin a series in Advent, um, just preparing leading up to Christmas time. And so if you have your Bible, you want to get to James chapter 5. We're going to um, cover 13 through 20. And really, um, so there's a lot of debate around the topic of what it means to be healthy. And some would argue one thing, and some would argue another thing, and here's the things you should do, and here's the things you shouldn't do. Um, James, throughout his whole book, has been arguing this point of, here's what it looks like for a Christian to be healthy. Here's what healthy faith looks like, um, that it's something that's deeply rooted in us, but works itself out into how we live our lives. And so, man, I just, um, I mean, you just heard Kelly read it. The, the text that we're looking at today is so practical. I mean, it's just so practical. Like, I don't even know that I need to really expound upon it a ton because it's just like it's simple, which is all of what Proverbs has been laying out for us. So um, let, me, let me make this clear as we dive into the text. One of the things that we've been saying over and over again um, about the book of James is really this picture of James being um, a story that's depicting and that's written not to just like individual believers, um, but that James was trying to, to strengthen communities. The, J- the book of James is written to community of, communities of believers, communities of churches that would be strengthened in their resolve, in their faith in Christ, and it would impact how they live out their mission. And so as we look at this text, here's what I want to set, set out from the very beginning, is we have to see this text in the context of people together, in the context of church, a life on life. This isn't just isolated individuals doing isolated things. Okay, but this is the people of God literally doing life together with God. Okay, so let's, um, let's jump in. Verse 13. Um, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is that pretty, uh, pretty confusing to anybody? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Um, let me ask you this question. What's your tendency when things get difficult? Anybody want to speak that out? When things get difficult, what's your tendency? Like, what do you do? Anybody? Complain? Worry? Okay. Anybody else? When things get difficult, what do you do? You can maybe sum it up in these three F's. Uh, fight, flight, or freeze. Okay? When things get crazy, maybe you, maybe you fight. Maybe you're like, I'm going to tough this out. I'm going like, to like strengthen myself. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to use my own wisdom. And I'm going to fight. Okay, um, we looked in earlier in chapter 3 where James was talking about the folly of man's wisdom and really that even our own, our own strengthening of ourselves apart from the wisdom of God is demonic. Okay? Um, but the other one would, might be flight. Like, things get hard and what do we do? We quit. Like, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm going. I'm running. It's this active. It might be physically. It might be emotionally. It might be spiritually. It might be mentally. We, we fight. We fight. We run. We go. Or maybe we're just paralyzed by it. We freeze. We're overwhelmed by the struggle. We're defeated. We're depressed. And we literally do nothing. Um, but James wants to, wants to tell us this today, is that 
that struggle is an invitation. Okay, th- I mean, think, think for a second. Okay, think about what, what you're struggling through right now. Like, what are you working through right now? Like, what are you like? If I could remove this, I would. Or maybe you're like, I love this. Like, what? picture that struggle. I mean, you're living it, right? Now, take that and think about this. James' argumentation here is it's an invitation. It's God wooing you into his presence. It's a call to worship. Because what does he say? If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Okay, life with God, that we'd be people that would go to God in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of, man, what are we working through? It's interesting how often, I mean, I even experienced this in my own life, like how often I have a tendency to ask God to remove one of the very things that God says is the means to me knowing him more fully. Look at the words among you. It says, if anyone among you, so this is, this is written to community. This is like a group of individuals, and if we see anyone among us that's struggling, what do we do? Here's the danger of what we do, is we gather in community groups, and we talk together about what we could do, or how we can be better people, or how we can encourage each other, um, which isn't necessarily bad, but there's, a, there's a, the possibility of us suffering together as people and it not leading to relationship with God. That it not be, if anyone among us is suffering, let's use that as a means to get to God, of accessing God. If anyone is among you is suffering, let him pray. James has the community in mind. And you and I, were a community of strugglers. We run to God together. We beg of God together to do his will, to do his work, to remove where he wants to remove our sin, our struggle, our suffering. We go to God together. Because here's the thing. Our struggles reveal our faith. The things that really are hard and difficult, what they're doing is God's using those to reveal the idolatry in us. Like, where are we selfish? Where are we wanting to serve our own intentions? Where do we want to just sit in the comforts of life, in the pursuit of luxury and self-indulgence, as James talked about earlier, in materialism. But then he goes on, just super practical. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. What's the next line? If anyone among you is cheerful, let him sing praise. Now, have you ever met this person? Like, they're the person that are like, they're constantly snapping, right? Constantly like humming, or got a beat going, or singing, and sometimes it's like real, you know, real quiet, and, and then other times they don't know anyone else is around, and they're just like, you know, that's what James is talking about, okay? But notice, notice what it says, if anyone among you is cheerful, let him sing praise. So really, it's, it's James is saying, here's the simple truth, is that joy is a gift from God, and that as God's people, we should be individuals who take that joy and usher it back to God in thanksgiving. That's what we just celebrated, right? That's what we just gathered with families and gathered with friends to celebrate thanksgiving, to think on God's good graces to us. And James is saying, if you're cheerful, sing praise, be together with believers and give thanksgiving to God. Celebrate together. Live lives of worship together. How easy is it for you and for me in our lives to think about the good that comes 
and fail to attribute it to God. Right? We, are, we can clap, you know, great job. I did such a good job here of getting to this point, accomplishing this. Okay? Um, we're really good sometimes at going to God when there's struggle. God, I need you. God, I need you. God, I need you. What about when things are good? Gosh, God, thanks for your grace. Thanks for the joy. It's crazy, the connection, isn't it? How God uses the, the struggle to lead us into joy. We see that all over the Bible. God uses the struggle to lead us into joy, to teach us that he's good. Look at verse 14. 14 and 15. Just keeps getting practical here. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Um, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, or you're familiar at all just with Jesus, um, one of the things that we know he did a lot of was healing, right? I mean, there's constant instances in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus is healing. He's performing miracles. He's going to the sick. In fact, we see numerous places where the Bible says Jesus came not, not for those that are well, right? Like his heartbeat was for those that were sick and had need. He didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. He didn't come to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners. Even one of the marks of even the ministry of the disciples was they were sent out to heal. They were sent out to do ministry, to go to those who were suffering and bring healing. To go to those who were sick and bring healing. Now, notice the phrase, call for the elders of the church. So, really, biblically speaking, at least what we believe here, um, is this role of elder is, really, we have elders have two main responsibilities, according to Acts 6, uh, Acts 6 4, um, to shepherd the church um, in the context of the Word, the Word of God, and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. So it's not that elders are like to only be the only ones that pray. So like it's one of the dangers here when you look at this text is to say, oh, well, there must be something magical about the elders praying. No, not at all. Um, the elders of a church, the elders of this church, myself, Jeff, Mike, Rick, we're, we're not this, you know, we don't have this special access to God, this priestly access to God that anyone else doesn't have that if you're in Christ. You have the same access to God. But here's, here's what the calling for elders is. is not that we would do all the praying or not that we would be the only ones to pray, but that we would be a people that lead the church to pray. That lead the church to pray. And it's interesting, as I, as I was studying this passage this week and thinking through this passage, this became one of my prayers, is that even as we wrap up the book of James and this whole section here that we're looking at today is about prayer, it really led me to this place to begin praying that God would use this passage to motivate us and grab a hold of our hearts in this area of prayer. I had a friend tell me um, recently that the number one job of a pastor is to teach his church to pray. I'm just like, man, that's what I want to be. I don't know that I'm good at that. I don't know that I do that well. But that's what I want to be, is a person that leads us to pray, is an elder that leads us to pray. Now, 
you'll notice it talks about sickness. So go get the elders of the church, go to the person that's sick. Um, this isn't necessarily like, you know, the common cold, like I have a runny nose, come pray over me. I mean, it could include, it could include that, but James, I think, is focusing more on a, this, prolonged, uh, this prolonged suffering, this, this, this need to endure. And what I love about this is, is the invitation that we see, just super practical, where James is saying to see every instance in life as a means to draw God in and know him. And to draw the community in and to walk through life together with God. That's what James is talking about. If anyone among you is suffering, let's pray. If anyone is cheerful, let's sing songs of praise. If anyone among you is sick, gather together and pray. Pray together. I use the instance of of oil. What's oil? What does that have to do with anything? Well, oil, in this case, it was specifically olive oil, was really a symbol of God's healing power. It was a symbol um, that really, you know, in the same way that um, there's not, like, there's not a specific, like, miraculous reality with oil. It's not like the oil's magical and you put it on someone's head and and that's what does it. It's It's a symbol of God's healing power. And in using it, it's an act of faith. To say, God, we believe you are a healing God, and we believe you can heal. Now, it's interesting because I'm sure some of the things that you're thinking about is, well, does God heal? Is God still a healing God? Some people believe that God no longer is in the business of healing, right? And then there's others um, that believe um, this idea that, that your faith and healing is attached to, like, your faith. And so um, if you're praying for someone and they're not healed, it's because you, your faith is weak. You didn't trust God enough or believe God enough. It's interesting, though, because um, the Apostle Paul, the Bible tells us he, has a, he had a physical ailment. We don't know specifically what it was, but he says that he pleaded with the Lord to remove it. And what happened? He didn't. God didn't do it. God says, my, my strength is perfected in your weakness. In your weakness. Um, I had a really close friend that a couple years ago died of cancer. Man, we prayed. We gathered together and we prayed. People prayed over her. Did God not heal her because we didn't trust him enough? It's interesting because I, I went to her funeral, and here's what I told her husband. And it's a struggle, right? Because like you, you labor in prayer over someone suffering, and in some regards, God said no to what specifically we were asking. We were asking that he would heal her and keep her here. He healed her, but he took her. And I looked at her husband as his, his wife lay in the casket there in the room, and I told him, I said, something to the effect of like, how good of God to use his wife as a means to draw God's people into God's presence. Because think about this. We so often are focused on the answer when God's desire is that we would be with him. 
right? And so even, even in praying, all these people gathered together and prayed and sought the Lord on behalf of Danielle. Did the specific reality of what we were praying, did God say yes to that? No, he said no to that. But what he did is through the processes, he said, come and know me. Come and see that I'm good in the midst of hardship. Come and see that I'm good in the midst of death. Come and see. And here's the thing. Is this, this woman was one of the most profound, profoundly godly women I've ever met. God just loved the Lord. Loved the Lord. And so I think it's interesting that um, we can't always attach sickness to sin. Okay, now there's some instances where sickness is a result of sin. Right? If I go, 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 I'm not stopping, I'm not taking a break, I'm going to get sick. Right? Now, there's sometimes God will make me sick to get me on my back to realize, hey, you need me. Don't forget about me. It's interesting here, though, that I think James might have in mind this idea of sickness that's a result of um, sin. As he's talking about them together. Um, but what he, what he has in mind most is this idea that God wants to enter into what's going on in our lives. And he wants to walk with him as a community of faith. And so think about it. If you think about sickness, um, James mentions them together that, that prolonged sickness is actually, what's it going to do? If you're, have you ever been sick for a really long time? What happens? Like you begin to despair. You begin to struggle. You begin to have a difficult time. You might even begin to have unbelief in your heart and discouragement. And what's the invitation? Is that as the people of God, we would enter into that person's situation and speak hope and speak healing. That might include physical healing, but it might just include the saving work of taking that person from the weariness of their physical situation to the hope-filled reality that God is good and God is in control in spite of physically what's going on with me. Okay? We've got to get past this idea that, that our health is our Savior. God's deeply interested in our health. It's just not ultimate. God cares deeply that we be people that are healthy physically, spiritually, emotionally. But it's not our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Here's the simple truth. God invites us into what he's doing. He's accomplishing his will through the faith of his people. Like, hear, hear that today. Like, this is amazing, okay? I don't always understand God's plan. I don't always understand what God's doing. But somehow in my small, finite, broken life, he says, Dave, I want to invite you in to the grand redemptive narrative that I'm doing all across the world forever. And he says, and through your faith, as weak as it is, I'm going to do unbelievable things to make my name great. He says that about you. He says that about each one of us. He uses, he invites us in to the work that he's doing. We don't always understand it. We don't always understand why or why not or what's, like, why he says yes to things and why he says no to things. But we know he's good and we know he's in control. And faith is never a means of controlling God. 
Right? And that's where we got to be really careful is where we, we have this view of like, well, if I believe enough, then God will do this. You know, what if what we're asking God to do is just really, really bad for, for us and for those around us? Like to us, it might not be bad, but to God in the grand scheme of all of life, he's like, no, like that's not good. It's better that I take this person, which doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to me. But he's like, I'm God. I know. I know what I'm doing. And it's for your good and for your joy. Let's be careful not to use our faith as a means to manipulate and control the one who's sovereign and just and good. Look at 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. One of the, one of, here's one of the hard things about doing life with others and doing life with God. Is God's very much interested in exposing our unbelief. Like all over the place. Like the situations he brings into our lives. He's orchestrating life in such a way that he'd be like, hey, you're not trusting me here. Hey, I'm good. You can trust me. Pay attention. He's exposing our idolatry, and the primary way he does that is through community. It's through people. It's through life on life. Now, um, if you're a parent, you'll understand this. If you're not, you, if you're a kid that had a parent, you'll understand this. But here's one of the necessary skills of parenting. Criminal investigation. It's necessary for parents to understand and be able to navigate criminal investigations because here's what happens is like you have this fight and this situation that goes on like in the other room and you go in and like no one's at fault, right? And you're like, well, the lamp's broken, you're bleeding and there's stuff everywhere, but no one did anything wrong. Right, so what do you got to do? You got to begin to pry. You got to begin to like, what happened? You know, they did that. That's their fault. You know, like, no, he did that. Like, and you have to begin to weave your way through and try to figure out. And oftentimes, like, you really don't have a clue. So, like, you're all you're all getting punished. You're all wrong. Um, Rarely ever um, do you have the instance where um, voluntarily someone will say, "Yeah, I did it." Maybe sometimes we got some some good kids. Um, but he, here's the crazy thing is that kids, or let's just say the, the immature, um, have a really hard time admitting their faults. We <laughs> have a really hard time oftentimes admitting our flaws, admitting our faults. You ever been called out? Have you ever had somebody just like say, man, like, why'd you do that? And you just realize like, like, the way you just talked, like, I've had my wife, like, do you realize how you just talked to, to her? Like, how that came across? And I'm just like, ugh, yeah, I didn't realize that. I didn't see that. Like, it's not fun. We're oftentimes unwilling to own up to them. And here's the thing is that community draws those out. Like, where you're isolated from people, I mean, you can get by with those. You can do whatever you want. You can build up anger and rage and stuff in your heart, but you never really deal with it because you're not around people. But community draws out those things. 
or you even have kids or adults fighting, you see a need for change. And here's the thing is that living life up close to a holy God is going to expose the unholiness in us and the work that Christ is doing to make us into the image that he says we have through his death. That life every day in community with God is us becoming in practice who we already are in God's eyes. He says, this is the identity you have in my son. Now let's live that way. And here's where you're not living that way. And that's the role of community is that we would begin to speak into each other's lives. Here's not how you're living out the realities of the gospel, the realities of my love. Do you like owning up to your own mistakes? No, like there's the, the whole like, it's like you pick your kids up from school. I pick, I'll use my example. I pick my kids up from school and I'm like, voluntarily confession, like, daddy, I had a bad day. It's like, oh, I didn't even ask you. Okay. Or like they get in the car and you're like, how was your day? Good. And you're like, I'm going to ask you again. How was your day? And then you preface it with like, I know the answer, right? Like, I got the phone call. I know the situation that happened. So let me back up the tape. How was your day? Right? You got to draw it out. You got to draw it out. Come on. Like, tell, speak the truth. And here's what James is wanting to tell us. So we look back at the verse where he says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Listen, the mark of a growing follower of Jesus is that we would grow in voluntary confession. Like, not just like, oh, this, oh I got caught confession, but it's like, what if no one ever found out type of confession. It's like, I need to tell you this. There might be not be a chance you'll ever know or ever find out, but I need to voluntarily confess the brokenness that's going on in my heart and the unbelief that's going on in my life. Not because you're going to catch me, but because that's the mark of someone who lives closely with believers who are pursuing Christ and closely with Christ, is that we would be people who voluntarily speak out the truth of our own brokenness, and listen, we find healing. Has, has anyone ever, like, had that conversation with somebody? Like, where you, you just confess. And, like, leading up to it, it's just, like, a super burden. Like, I don't want to say that. I want to do that. And then you, like, you begin to speak out what's going on in your soul and what happens. Like, you're just like, and there's like this weight, and you begin to work through, and you begin to have conversation. And that person begins to speak the hope of Christ into you, and what happens? You begin to find healing. That's what James is talking about. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Pray that we'd be people that walk in victory. Pray that we'd be people that where we fail, we'd see the grace of Christ, because we're going to fail. We do it all the time. James says we're people who stumble in many ways. We're going to be people that fail. Confession brings healing, and healing brings freedom. Because one, here's what the, the enemy wants to do, is he wants to keep it in the dark. Right? He wants to keep it hidden. Right? Like, they'll never find out. I can navigate this and be sneaky. And James is like, it's going to go bad. It's going to go 
bad. Listen, you want to danger-proof your life? I'm not talking about physically, but I'm talking about spiritually. You want to guard yourself from going off the path spiritually? Learn to cultivate a heart that voluntarily confesses where you're broken and where you need others to speak the hope of Jesus into you. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. But that's, that's what James is saying. We'd be those kind of people and find healing in community that loves. That we'd be people who pray for one another and love one another in the midst of that. It's nasty. It's, it's messy. Listen, that's church. And I'll, and I'll just say this. Um, that's the kind of church that we have. And that's what I love about us, is that we're those kind of people. Is that, like, we're not... I mean, I've had so many people come here and, and tell me, like, wow, I just can't believe, like, how open and vulnerable you guys are. And I'm like, wow, they said that, and, like, they're struggling with that. And, like, it's just, like, put it on the whiteboard. Like, we're just real. And we'd be the kind of people, we continue to be the kind of people that pursue one another and love one another in the midst of that. And let me, let me say this, pray for one another in the midst of that. Right? Don't encourage someone apart from prayer. Like, use your encouragement as a means to get you and them to get us to the throne that we'd be more closely with Christ. Now, um, James goes in to talk about this guy named Elijah and his effectiveness in praying. So let's look at this real quick. Um, 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I just love when the Bible speaks plainly like that. Like we often see biblical characters and we hold them up like they're these amazing people. And we see people, like the heroes of the faith in, in Hebrews 11 where it's like these amazing people, um, even though their lives were really in shambles. And James wants to make it really clear that Elijah, in the story we're about ready to read, he had a nature just like you and just like me. He wasn't the super special person. Um, he was just like you and just like me. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I want you to see this passage because it's just ridiculous. So go to 1 Kings. Um, I'll also put it on the screen um, if you're like, where in the heck is 1 Kings? Um, well, it's on the screen today. So 1 Kings 18. I want you to see this because, man, this is just, it's insane. Um, verse 18, or chapter 18, 1 Kings 18. So a little bit, a little bit of background about 1 Kings. Um, there's this showdown between uh, the king of Israel, a bad king named Ahab, and Elijah the prophet. And uh, it's, quite, it's quite the showdown. So let's look at it. So Ahab, I'm at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So they're going to have this showdown on this mountain called Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So he just begins to call them out and say, You know, you're like, make up your mind. Like one minute you're worshiping the true God and one minute you're worshiping the false God. Um, like pick one. Pick one. And the people did not answer him a word. 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet 
of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let me just set the stage here for you. You have 450 men versus one. Be a pretty good battle. 450 to one. So here's the, they set the stage, verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So Elijah's trying to get them to realize um, this is who God is. And you need to put your trust in the one true God. And we're going to do a test and see who the one true God is. And so um, the prophets of Baal right now are giddy. Do you know why they're giddy? It's because Baal was a God who spoke and answered through fire. I just lo- I love when like, God does this kind of stuff. Because um, you know Elijah knew that. Right? And so he sets the stage, and here's, you know, like, you're going to basically set this bowl on this table, and I'm going to put mine on this table, and we're going to cry out to God, our gods, and whichever one consumes it with fire is going to be the one true God. Now, check this out. Look what happens. This is just so great. Lost my spot. 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar. So picture them just walking around. They've They've been like circling the altar like all morning, praying, praying, praying. And at noon, okay, let's go back to what I said earlier, Elijah had a nature that was just like us. Okay, let me proof right here. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. So he starts to trash talk, right? Cry, and he says, cry aloud for, for he is a god. And he says, either he is musing or he is relieving him. So he's like, your guy might be going to the bathroom, right? Or he just had a long morning, like keep crying out to him. So he's just beginning to make fun of them. Um, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and you need to wake him up. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at midday, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the obligation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And listen. James is holding out Elijah as a man of prayer. And we're going to see why he was a man who did powerful things in prayer. And we already know it's not because he had some great nature that was different than us. He's just like you and me. All the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribe of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be sons of Jacob, or Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, 
Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And he said, do it... uh, he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, let me stop here, because this is important. What did James say that Elijah did accomplish through his prayer? Is that he prayed that it wouldn't rain, right? So, right here in this context, they're in the midst of a drought, Okay, in large part thanks to Elijah. Okay, um, and so here in this situation, the drought is literally about to come to an end. So there's some three years into this drought, and what happens? Elijah takes the most, one of the most precious commodities that you have, and you can just picture the prophets of Baal that is as they're pouring this around the altar, just like, whoa, whoa, like water, like I, where did you get that, right? Um, and he pours. This water around the altar, not once, not twice, three times. And as we say often at my house, water and fire are not friends. Okay? They don't get along very well. But notice what happens. 36, and at the time of the offering of the obligation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you were God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all of these things at your word. Now listen to this. Listen to this man who has a nature just like us. Listen to what he says. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. Listen. So I can look great, so that I could be this great prophet and people look back and be like, look how great I am. No, look at what he says. Answer me this, that people may know that you are the Lord, that you are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and I just love this, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Notice, like, like Elijah's like, it's all, my prayers are all about him. And then continue reading, because we see the fulfillment of what James, or what James is talking about. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing of rain, and Ahab went up to drink, to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. You ever pray like that? Maybe we should. It showed his urgency, it showed his fervency, it showed his humility before holy God, and, and he said to his servant, go up now. Look toward the sea, and he went up and looked and, and said, There is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariots and go down lest the rain stop. And in a little while the heavens grew back with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. When I read that passage, I'm deeply convicted about how 
un, or how impatient I am in my prayers. And I'm deeply convicted um, by the fact that I'm not fervent and I'm not persistent and I'm not um, like have these things that like I'm asking God to do and believing that he can. Because you know what, what James is really wanting to get us to see is that what makes the prayer of a righteous man effective is that the righteous man and the righteous woman actually learn to pray the will of God. Not that we can use our righteousness to manipulate God, but that when we get with God and we know God, we actually begin to know his heart and we begin to pray his will. We begin to pray his word. That's why God did marvelous things through Elijah. Not because he was this crazy, awesome man, but because he humbled his heart before the Lord and asked God to to do what God's will was, which is to make not Elijah great, but to make the name of God great. Here's a question. Where in your life is God calling you to do the hard work of prayer? Where do you need to pray bigger or more boldly? I just love it because Elijah, man, he shook the heavens. He shook the heavens with his prayer. Now go back to James Here's the danger that James says we have is that we grow weary and that we want to quit. Right? Look at the last two verses. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Have you ever wandered? Have you ever had a task at hand? Okay. You ever gone to do something, next thing you know, you weren't doing it at all? You ever told your kid to go clean their room, and next thing you know, like, they're in the basement, they're not even in their room, they just kind of wander off? Okay. What James is saying is that as the people who, who do life together with God, is that we'd be people who, in the long obedience in the same direction, guard one another from wandering off the path. Okay. The word wander literally depicts to be deceived or to be misled. Okay, to, to go the way to death. That's the way the Proverbs depicts it over and over and over again. That's what James said, the pursuit of a life of luxury and self-indulgence. And here's what James is saying, is that as people who do life together with God, is that we would be people who do ministry of restoration. That we'd be people who, where we begin to see wandering happen, we begin to see getting off course, not believing the truth of the gospel, not believing the truth that, listen, your acceptance before Christ is Christ alone, and not anything you can do or will do. And when you stand before God, what, what gives you access to him isn't, yeah, I did this, 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 and this, but it's that based on the perfect blood of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that God gives me only by his mercy. Listen, as the church, we should be people who are constantly in the state of readiness to, to go to those who are wandering and say, hey, what, what are you doing? Like, come back. Come back. And here's the crazy thing is that when we're isolated, when we're not in community, when we're not with people, wandering goes unnoticed and it goes unchecked. And listen, the further off you wander, what do we know? Sometimes it's harder to get back. And sometimes it takes longer to get back. And sometimes it's more painful to get back. You can get back, absolutely. But what did we talk about early, earlier? Those individuals, they stop voluntarily confessing. 
You ever wander off? You ever had moments where you wandered off? What do you do? You stop voluntarily confessing your sin. Stop being in the presence of the Lord. Stop being in community. Listen, this is Christian discipleship, is that we'd be people who do life together with God. Why? To save souls from death. That's what it says. Look at it again. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What's that saying? It's depicting by guarding one another and being in life together, we actually cover a multitude of sins that keep like what we would endure if we got off track. This is what James is talking about. Life together with God. So how's your faith? We've spent 12 weeks talking about faith in the book of James. Very practically speaking, of what it looks like to be people that have healthy faith where our faith is worked out in how we live our lives. So how's your faith? Where are you wandering? Are you in community? Are you doing the hard work of prayer? Are you confessing? Are you healthy? Because the book of James this whole time has been about a healthy faith in a healthy community to serve a holy God. Are you healthy? Let's pray. Man, it's... it's I mean, I, I can think of like 10 things I need to like confess and deal with and where I don't pray well and where I don't do community well. Um, man, let's pray. And as we begin to respond, and I just think it's... Um, what, I, what I think I want to just draw us to is, is not that we'd be condemned by the practicality of the word, but that we would be encouraged to press into the life that God has for us as faithful people. So let's pray, and, and then we'll um, respond to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so, so practical. So practical. And I thank you that you've reminded us this morning about the invitation to be people that pray people that do life together with you and journey together on this road called life. God, trusting you and allowing others to expose where we don't trust you. God, we're people who, I'm a, I just, I'm a person who doesn't pray well. I want to grow in that. I want to walk more deeply in that. And I pray that you would use this passage in this time this morning to enable us to do that. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for teaching us. Would you beckon us into your presence? God, I'm amazed that you call us into your presence, that you want to know us, that you want us to know you, you want to walk with us through life. God, thanks for that. It's incredible. God, we love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.